when you're building wealth, it snowballs. It actually gets a lot faster as you start to build on itself, right? It took me forever to achieve. And again, it was very deliberate. I knew when I was going to become a million and everything else, but it takes you forever to get from zero to $100,000 or maybe even out of debt to back to zero. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors and they partner with me on all my deals. So if you're thinking about investing passively, go check out my website, ellieperlman.com. You can find a guide that I created for you about the top five critical deal components that you have to look into if you're investing passively and actively in real estate, especially multifamily. All right. So today on the show, I'll be hosting Willie Mandrell. And Willie's a self-made multimillionaire real estate investor, broker, coach, lecturer, and author. And as a buyer, seller, and a broker, he's been involved with well over 200 million in real estate transactions. And, you know, Willie has been featured in numerous trade magazines, and he is a frequent guest on real estate and wealth-related podcasts, television, radio shows. So we have a celebrity here today. And then Willie is the author of Cashflow Secrets, a book on real estate investing and finance tips that most people are never taught but need to know. Willie's also a member of the Forbes Real Estate Council. I would love to welcome Willie to the show. Hey, Willie, how are you doing today? Hey, Ellie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you're a very, very interesting person. You have really nice and interesting and diverse background. Can you tell me and the listeners a little bit more about you and how you got started in real estate? Sure. I've been interested in finance or money. I grew up, you know, people use the term humbly. I grew up just dirt poor, you know, so I mean, always been interested in money and how to make more of it, how to, you know, scale myself in the, in the corporate world initially. And then I got my, my series seven, which is a financial services license. I studied for my CFA. You start learning about how money makes money and different investment opportunities. So I've researched them all, right? I've been involved in stock trading. I've been, you know, options. I've done a little bit of everything in the financial services industry. I've had my mortgage broker's license. I've had my insurance license, my life health producer's license. And I found that through all of these different things, real estate was the one thing that was consistent for me, the one thing that would produce and it has made more millionaires over time. So I started diving into it. I got into it really early. I bought my first investment property at age 23. It was 2006, so right before the height of the market and tough time to buy. I put a ton of money into it, lost a ton of money, but don't regret it at all. Learned a lot from it, you know, rolled the market down 2008, 2009, 2010, and then started buying more in 11, 12, 13, 14. And it's been a roller coaster ride, but it's been absolutely great. So, I mean, that's 
kind of my background, full financial services, understand it. And through all those different investment vehicles that I've been part of, I feel like real estate has always been number one. Excellent. And I think that's kind of a good segue to talk about assets. What type of assets and properties do you invest currently? And if you can also talk a little bit about how they perform during COVID, that's going to be really interesting, I think, for the listeners to hear. Yeah, sure. So my primary asset is I, I focus on multifamily, but it's residential property. So by that, I mean two to four units. I'm in the Northeast here, and I know you're familiar with the Rhode Island area. So there's a lot of three families here. Those triple deckers, very popular in the Northeast, Hampshire, Boston, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. And that is my bread and butter. And the reason I stay in that market and you know people have different strategies is I become, I find that you can create the most equity there. You can buy, you can also, I think you make your money going in. And I feel like there's a lot of emotional decisions still being made by investors in that particular market. Once you get above five you know, to 100 units, 200 units, those are commercial investors, very savvy. They hire very savvy brokers. They trade on cap rate. In the residential space, it's a lot of, hey, you know, I've held this property for 20 years. I want to get out of here. Coronavirus is coming. I'm scared. I want to move down to Florida before my retirement vehicle evaporates. Get me out of this thing, right? So there's a lot of, you know, I, sometimes I'm walking into properties with $50,000 in equity just right off the purchase. So that is my primary investment vehicle, that residential space. And in terms of performance during COVID, I'm a big believer. I'm, I would say 70 to 80% of my portfolio is voucher-based or Section 8 tenants. Mm. So a lot of housing tenants. And as long as the local government is paying, then I'm good. Which, and again, Boston, the city of Boston paid their bills. You know, the state paid its bills. So I didn't have any problems. I had of the, you know, I'm roughly around 45 units with another maybe 10 in various stages of construction. And I've had one gentleman who didn't pay me. He was a market rate tenant during the last March, April, May, June of the coronavirus. Very interesting. You know, I can tell that as an investor and I buy multifamily properties across the U.S., Section 8 is something that I'm trying to avoid mainly because I don't really understand the risks that are involved with it. But it sounds like you know, in today's recession, this is the, actually the safer investment because the government always pays, a tenant doesn't always pay. And that's kind of the difference. Do you see any difference in performance with Section 8 tenants before COVID versus during COVID? Or is it, you know, are collections, you know, always high because there's a government behind a tenant and the government always pays? Yeah. So there's, and again, you had mentioned it, I think, and I've always been a, you know, a person who believes in finding your niche and developing your niche and, and really understanding your market. And, you know, my business is not for everyone, but I'm a big believer in it because there's a lot of false assumptions when they come along with mm -hmm. section eight tenants. They believe it's, they're damaging your property and you have to accept anyone. I think that's the biggest thing that like, if you market your, you know, your apartment that if somebody comes with a section eight voucher that you have to accept them, you can still have qualifying standards. I still ask for a credit score. I'm still looking for a security deposit. I'm still looking for additional income as well. They can't just have the section eight voucher. They also need to, you know, pay for their own utilities. They still need to eat. They still need to, you know, furnish the apartment. So if I'm looking at a, where the, the section eight or the voucher of the city, the municipality pays 80% of the income, the person already has additional income coming in they have a decent credit score and they're giving me a security mm -hmm. deposit. You know, I think that's you know, a very good situation to be in. And so to answer your question specifically, no, collection rates have always been pretty good. That's fantastic. I mean, I think it definitely changes the way that I see Section 8 you know, deals. 
That's really interesting. I want to kind of switch gears and talk a little bit about the strategy of thriving financially in a recession. And it sounds, you know, from what you're saying, that if you invest right in you, even with Section 8, you can still be successful today as a real estate investor and you can still thrive financially. So, you know, many people, they struggle financially during a recession, during this one and the previous one, but you actually believe that people can thrive financially today. And maybe it ties back to, you know, the book that you wrote. Can you talk a little bit about what's your definition of thriving financially and how can someone do that today? Absolutely. So I think the biggest thing, and this is why I I don't regret buying in 2006 and kind of living through that last recession, because one of the biggest things I learned, and Warren Buffett is a big proponent of it as well. Mm -hmm. And he preaches, and again, I can't remember his exact words, but it's when everyone's running left, you look right, right? When everyone is being greedy, you be a little bit more conservative and, and vice versa. So typically during a recession, most people, most investors, emotional investors, emo, you know, people get emotional. They're seeing their 401k take a little bit of a dip. They're seeing other things, their assets taking a little bit of a dip. Most people are pulling back. They're retracting. And as an investor, if you're also following the crowd, you're never going to be able to win that way, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to find a way to you know, expand during a recession. And if you are doing that, you're going to be really, really successful, right? So I find that, and maybe this is different for different parts of the country. I don't believe so though, but when people, and this is not a knock on anybody who's started investing in 2014 or 15, but it was a, a little bit of an easier time. If you started investing in 14 and 15 and 16, you know nothing but an upswing right now, right? Everything's been good. Properties are appreciating yeah. five, six, 7%. Everything's going up in value. So you're probably a little bit nervous about, you know, a potential downswing right now. So I think the the key is staying level. And what I think investors should know is that in an upswing market, money is easy to come across. Banks are lending, banks are kind of throwing money at you. It was kind of ridiculous at some of the deals that I was getting in from lenders over the last (laughs) few years, but deals are harder to find because everybody becomes an investor. Everyone wants to hop in the market. Well, during a recession, during a downturn, the opposite is going to happen. A lot of investors who thought they were investors are going to go away. This is the time where everyone gets weeded out. If you're not really serious about this business, if you're not long-term, they start to go away. Lending starts to tighten up, but deals start to come out a little bit more, right? Now the time where people are reacting emotionally, letting things go, planning for the next couple, 10, 10 years. So while deals may be, I think deals are going to be a little bit more available now, you're going to have to fight a little bit heavier for that money and present yourself well to lenders and make sure that you're keeping your financials tight during this time. And if you can kind of make that mindset shift, when things start to pick back up and the economy starts to improve again, you're going to be in an excellent position with some of the assets. You're going to be in a position to tell stories about the assets that you bought during the last recession. Oh yeah. And there are many, many stories. I can tell you that it's, that's a beauty in real estate. It's never boring. It's never a cookie cutter, you know, profession. And doesn't matter how prepared you are, you're always going to learn new things because real estate does not behave the way you want for better or worse. It's always different. I think you're absolutely right. Kind of the mindset of not following the crowd. And as long as you know what you're doing and you're keeping yourself out of trouble by making sure that you are, you know, you have the right processes in place, that you're well capitalized, I think you're going to do just fine. And I think 100% right that this recession weeds out those who started, you know, investing because it 
seemed like everyone was making money, which is not really true, but in many cases, that was the case. And right now, when things are challenging, you see, okay, who is really still, you know, standing? If I can tell you a quick story, this, I knew things were going in a different way when I'm also a real estate broker. I own a real estate brokerage. And I remember, I'll never forget this day, girl comes into the office, really smart girl. And she says, hey, I want to buy a condo and I want to spend roughly $600,000 on the condo. And in a couple of years, I'm actually moving to California. And I said, well, why would you buy a primary residence as a condo if you're moving to California in a couple of years? Or I think it was actually the next year. And she said, well, I'm buying it for 600 today. I'm going to sell it for 700 when I move in a year or two. You know, and I was like, well, where are you getting that number from? That's not an investment. That's purely speculation. And when the market starts to get there, you have to be cautious, right? And I think that's what Warren Buffett is talking about. When people are being greedy, you need to be Be cautious. And when people Mm -hmm. are being cautious, you need to be greedy. And that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I could tell you that when everyone was buying and overpaying up to, you know, Corona hit everyone, that was a time when I was actually extremely, not fearful, but extremely cautious because everyone was buying with the assumption that the expansion is going to continue. Rent increases and appreciation are going to continue because they have been for a decade. And I've been telling those folks, this is not sustainable. It's not real. It's been an expansion for, for, for you know, about 10 years now. The music is going to stop at some point. So you have to be, and that's why when we were underwriting, we're very cautious about the future, understanding that this is the top of the market and it can go any better than this, which made us also lose many deals because others were thinking, oh, we can still grow rents 5% year over year for the next five, six years. So based on their assumption, they justified a much higher price that we were not willing to pay. Yeah. And, and you, you, sometimes you have to lose those deals and you have to believe uh, yeah. in yourself and, you know, yeah. have that foresight and you're going to miss a couple, but you know, it's part of the part of the game. Exactly. Definitely part of the game. So really, I want to talk a little bit about the process of becoming a self-made millionaire, which is what you did. I mean, you did something pretty remarkable that something that many Americans are dreaming of. That's the ultimate American you know, dream to become a self-made millionaire. What kind of actual steps can you share with our listeners that they can implement tomorrow so they can start paving that path for themselves and become self-made millionaires? You're probably not going to like my answer, or at least your listeners are not going to like my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's really simple. It's focus. Most of society today, and like I said, is just they, they want everything tomorrow or they mm-hmm. just don't want it at all, right? I mean, it's the only thing that I did. I don't, I'm not unique. I'm not Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not, what's the guy with Tesla? I can't remember his name, <laughs> but I, I didn't come up with anything. Elon that, Musk. Elon Musk, you're right. I didn't come up with anything that was unique or innovative or anything like that. It, I think real estate, if I'm not mistaken, is one of the oldest industries, one of the oldest professions, you know, that we know in the world, right? So I bought assets and I rent them out and I waited. And that's really all it is. So it's really about patience would be number one. And then two is just putting a plan in place, you know, deciding what you want in your future. Most people don't have the ability to look out five years, 10 years or 20 years down the road and say, here are the things that I want. And here is why I'm investing in real estate. Real estate can be a lot of work in terms of finding an asset and financing the asset and, and repositioning the asset and, you know, and stabilizing it. It can be a lot of work. And if you're not in the right mindset and looking towards the future and understanding why you're doing all that work, it will knock you right out of doing it. It's easier to 
not, it's not a knock on any stock investors, but it's much easier to set up an E-Trade account, dump a couple thousand bucks and just start trading. So that's what most people want to do because it's a lot easier to do. They understand that real estate is a powerful asset, but they don't want to take the time. They don't want, they can't, the long-term focus is not there. So it's really, it's really simple. It's just having the long-term mindset to go into this, looking, having the foresight to see the future down the road, and then just creating a roadmap for yourself. Something I've always done since the mm-hmm. very beginning, since I started you know, investing was, where do I want to be five years from now? And I would write my goals down on paper. Most people don't. They have them in their head and they just kind of, just kind of wing it. They say, here, I think I want to do this. No, this is where I know I'm going to be five years from now. And I take that five-year plan and I break it down into four years and three years and then two and one. And I say, based on my one-year goal, which was based on my five-year goal, here's what I need to do during the month of June. And I put my June goals out on my desk and I say, based on my June goals, here's what I need to do today to get to where I want to be in the end of June, to get to where I want to be at the end of 2020, to get to where I want to be at the end of five years. And it's really that simple. That's beautiful. And that's exactly what I do, actually. And I think you're absolutely right. People don't really create the very specific plan. They want to get somewhere, but it's unclear what is it exactly that they want and, you know, even putting a number to it can really help. And that's what I do. I say, hey, I want to own X amount or have a cash flow of Y amount. And now let's reverse engineer it. What do I need to do in the next 10 or five years to get there? Then what do I need to do in the next year and every month and every week so I can get there? If you don't have that defined roadmap, how can you get there? You're in a countryside. You don't have a GPS. How are you going to get to where you want to get? Just, just drive aimlessly? That is the perfect analogy because that is the analogy I use all the time. It's like I live in Boston, right? And I I tell people all the time, it's kind of like if you want to get to California, first you have to, you can't just hop in the car and first you have to decide that you want to be in California, right? Most people don't even have that as a destination. They just get in the car and drive really fast or really hard or for really long hours, not understanding where their destination is. I understand that if, if I'm leaving Boston and I want to get to California, it's going to take me X amount of days and I need to drive X amount of hours over those X amount of days to get there and I can stop periodically here and take a rest and I can see the countryside in Texas as I pass through, but I know I'm halfway there. I mean, it's just like taking a road trip, that there is no difference. It's, yeah. a, much, it's a much longer road trip, but it's, it's just like that though. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was extremely inspiring and helpful. And I think, yeah, it is a pretty you know, a good example of showing that this is where you need to go. It's not different. This destination is not different than any actual physical destination. You have to plan for it. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere. Some people might get there by chance, but it's very rare. I think every path to wealth was very calculated, very focused, very deliberate. And, you know, I like to read many successful entrepreneurs, you know, books and understand their bios and learn from them and see what do we have in common and what do I need to do better? One of them was Sam Zell. You know, he's a very big real estate investor. And I think his, his bio is, I think the book is called, Am I Being Subtle Enough? Or Am I Being Loud Enough? I forget the name of the book. But yeah, that's the one thing that is really common to most self-made millionaires. They were focused, they were dedicated, and they knew exactly where they want to go, even though it wasn't exactly clear to them from the get-go. But they worked as much as they could. And I would say another thing, even if you have a very, very specific destination, also you have to have the flexibility to adapt when things change. So don't be fixated, you know, saying, oh, I just want to invest in, you know, in the Florida market, for instance, or I just want to invest in my neck of the woods. Even though this is a good, you know, strategy for you that can work for you, 
have to kind of be a little bit flexible because economies change, circumstances change, and you have to not be locked on one path as long as it's still, you know, get you to your final destination, but have that flexibility. Ellie, if I can add one thing. So the only thing I would say that's different, that's unlike a road trip, right? Is at the end of the day, you still have to take a highway and, you know, there's speed limits. I think when you get out West, you can go a little bit faster than you can in the Northeast, <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but other than that, it's pretty much, you know, a steady pace. The difference is when you're building wealth, it snowballs. It actually gets a lot faster as you sure. start to build on itself, right? It took me forever to achieve. And again, it was very deliberate. I knew when I was going to become a million, everything else, but it takes you forever to get from zero to a hundred thousand dollars or maybe even out of debt to back to zero. Cause I mean, that's a lot of people, you know, come out of college and they have a hundred thousand dollars in student loans or whatever it may be. And you have to get back to zero. That's your first goal. And then it's going to take you a while to get to a hundred thousand dollars. And then it's going to take you a while to get to a quarter million. And from a quarter million to a half, it doesn't take that long. It doesn't take that much longer. And from a half to a million, it actually just seems like it was overnight. And then once you hit a million, it just seems like it just really, it's like you don't even do anything after that. And all of a sudden it's, it's multi-millions. So it really starts to take hold and starts to be a snowball effect after a certain period of time. But you do in the beginning need to scrape, crawl, beg, grab, kick, scream, or whatever you need to do to get that snowball started. And then it really just kind of, the rich get richer. And that's really, it, it, it's a true statement. That's why because of the snowball effect. It really does that compound interest, that, that compounding. If you have $100,000 and you earn 6% on it, you have $106,000. But if you have a 200, now you have 212 and it really just starts to snowball there and really take hold. So that would be the only, only difference. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Willie, for you know, sharing your thoughts with us. We have arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? I am. I am. Let's do it. All right. So Willie, what's your favorite hobby? I'm a ball player. Mm. I've loved basketball since the very beginning. I would have to say I'm, I'm pretty decent. You know, most people say that, but <laughs> no, and, and I love to travel. I think traveling is, is something that everyone should do as much as you can. It teaches me a lot. You know, I've been to the East. I've been, you know, Mexico and Canada and all the islands and everything else and Thailand, Italy and Germany. Every single time I go somewhere, I learn something different about new cultures mm -hmm. and just, you know, people and real estate as well. I love the, you know, the Italian real estate. Just, I, you know, my wife and I were there and I spent the entire time just imagining, you know, the Amalfi Coast and how do you build buildings out of the side of the mountain and how do you get the permit for that? You know, mm -hmm. so just traveling around and just learning new things. Awesome. So really, what's the number one thing that you know, people don't really know about you that you're willing to share here. The one thing I would say that I seem like a very outgoing person, seem like I'm very an extrovert, but I'm not. I mean, I actually mm -hmm. am a very private person. I've always been, but I understand that, you know, once I've achieved a certain level of success, so to speak, I had to get myself out there and I want to help more people because what I was saying, this is not very difficult. This is actually a very easy business. It's, you just have to be focused and systematic. And I felt like I needed to change who I was internally to deliver the message more often. Mm. All right. Willie, what do you wish you had known when you first started investing in real estate? That I would I have known that money is everywhere. Focus mm. on finding good deals, good opportunities. Money comes. Money is everywhere. If you are the source of good deals in real estate, if you can source good opportunities, you'll find the money. I used to worry about money way too much and I don't mm. worry about it anymore. I 
people laugh at me all the time. My wife laughs all the time because I'm like, hey, just put another deal under contract. She's like, how are you going to finance it? No idea. We'll figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you need to be a little bit gutsy to do those things. But that's the thing. The most successful people in the world just took a risk. I mean, and, and that's definitely part of it. All right. So what's your number one advice to a real estate investor that wants to scale their business or their portfolio? First, treat it like a business. That was one of the things I learned young as well. Most people come in and they they come out and they come out and they find a you know a two family or a three family and then they figure out how to get another one and then they get stuck. And it's because they don't treat it like a business. They don't put systems in place to get yourself out of the day to day. They think that landlording is about running around. And I know you own a ton of units, right? How many toilets have you actually gone out and plunged yourself or zero? zero. Exactly, right. Because you're putting systems in place and you're treating it like a business, right? Yep. We talk about Elon Musk is not on the front line building Tesla cars. He, you know, like I said, there would be no way for him to scale like that. So it's looking at larger property management companies, stealing their systems, putting your label on it, putting, you know, putting systems in place and handing those certain things off to someone else and focusing on the things that matter. And I think it would, in the beginning, it would be acquisitions. It would be going out and finding more opportunities, focusing on the financing and putting more deals into your portfolio. But if you're still plunging toilets and painting and doing everything yourself, then you're never going to be able to scale like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is an important mind shift for many people when you're there's nothing passive about fixing someone's toilet and doing all that you know legwork you should focus on finding the next deal because this is what you're good at and this is where you should be focusing your time on we're great well willie where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you oh i try to be everywhere i'm on instagram (laughs) (laughs) wj mandrell and at real wealth builders at wj mandrell and at real wealth builders linkedin bigger pockets you can look me up there And if you're interested in the books, I actually have one that's going to be coming out in a couple months and then a couple more to follow. It's realwealthbooks.com. Realwealthbooks.com is the site for all three of those books coming out. Yeah. And we'll have all those links in the show notes. So if you're listening, you want to, you know, read or get in touch with Willie, you can do that. We're going to have all the contact information and the links in the show notes as well. All right. Well, Willie, thank you so much again for your time. I hope that the listeners had, you know, as much fun as I had, you know, speaking with you and listening to you. And to you, the listeners, I hope that that was valuable for you. I definitely learned, you know, at least one thing. And I hope that that was the case for you guys. Be bold, be great, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.